And typically, what we do every other week is we go to the next chapter of whatever book we're studying. But I wanted to take, just like we did at Christmas time, I wanted to take just a few weeks, uh, this time it'll be two instead of four, and study the season that we're in, uh, in the calendar year. We're getting ready to celebrate Easter next week, and I thought it fit to study Palm Sunday. And so as we do that, if you'll forgive me, I'm going to break our little tradition of going straight through the scriptures, and I'm going to go, and we're going to read the account of Palm Sunday, Jesus' triumphal entry, as it's referred to in some of your Bibles. And we're going to read it in Matthew, we're going to read it in Mark, we're going to read it in Luke, and we're going to read it in John. And this will do a couple of things. Number one, repetition is good for learning. Every time something's repeated, you're more likely to take something away from it. And you know that if you played sports, you repeat the same things over and over again so you can get better at them. And you know that in school, if you're trying to memorize or learn something, they'll tell you the same thing over and over again, but it's for your learning. And in this case, we're going to do it this morning. We're going to start with Matthew chapter 21. I actually did put my bookmarks in this morning. It's got a little rainbow going on up here. Matthew chapter 21. And if you'll remember the context, Jesus is nearing the end of his life. And as he's nearing the end of his life, it's almost as if this is the busiest week in his entire life. You would think that as he's preparing to give his life as a sacrifice and in service to those he came to love, that he would kind of back away and take some me time. But he doesn't. He actually, it's like he goes on overdrive. It's much like those that get ready to get married The week before the wedding, things really ramp up. There's planning, there's things to buy, there's little details they forgot, and they're all in preparation for that wedding. And on the wedding day, it all comes to a culmination, whether it's done or not. And at the wedding, you you go, oh man, this is beautiful. But if you've ever planned a wedding, you go, man, it took a lot to get here. And so in the same way, Jesus, when he got up on that cross, when he was nailed to it, he allowed himself to be put to death, that was really just the the exclamation point on the end of the sentence of his love for us. First and foremost, he revealed the love of the Father to those he came to save. So his death, while the biggest piece of it, if he didn't do that, none of the other stuff mattered because it was just talk, his death really was a culmination of all that he had done and been prepared to do. And so as we read this morning, think about this. Jesus has been healing people. He raised Lazarus from the dead within the week before that. He, um, he has taught great long sermons, and people have sat there so long, willing to hear what he has to say. They're hungry. They want answers to life. And they're willing to sit there so long that Jesus stops, and he has compassion. He says, we need to feed these people. They've been here all day. When was the last time you were willing to sit and listen to somebody for a whole day? You know, they were at a point in their lives where they needed what Jesus had to offer and they were willing to do whatever it took to get it. Even skipping meals. Now, I got to confess, I don't like skipping a whole lot of meals. But when I get at the end of my road, there are some times where the Lord says, why don't you just hunger for me today? And so the Lord, he has been through so much and so the people are prepared. There's a group that's followed him from the bringing back to life of Lazarus. There's also a group that's followed him from Galilee, where he set up his his headquarters, and they're following him. They're his disciples, 
And as they get there to Jerusalem, it's the time of Passover. And so there's already three times as many, at least, of people in Jerusalem. Jerusalem's not a big place. But at the time of the big feasts, people would come from all around and they would join together for these feasts as part of their uh, recognizing and following the law, the covenant that God had made with Israel. And as they all show up, it's like a small town that has a college in it. During semesters, I went to Rolla. And during my time at Rolla, when summer came around, there was nobody there. It was a ghost town. But during semester, when school was going on, there were people everywhere. Every house that was empty all year round was full during the semesters. And so in the same way, Jerusalem was like that during this time. And the people were there walking into the city, and they were going to the temple to worship in the presence of God, because at that time, there weren't churches everywhere. You couldn't go down the street and go to another church. There was one place in Israel where they were to worship God, and one place only. And so in Matthew chapter 21, we begin in verse 1. It says, When they drew near Jerusalem, and they came to Bethpage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Notice there's two animals. You ever pictured it and said, Hey, you know, when Jesus rode in, we always picture him on one animal. But this animal was not even weaned yet from its mother. And so many commentators will say he actually rode in on the youngest one, which makes no sense because you can't just jump on an animal and ride it. It has to be trained to bear your burden. But that shows, once again, Jesus is not only Lord, but he's Lord of all creation. He he created animals. He created the universe. It all declares his glory and all obeys him many times better than we do. And so this colt bears his burden. But it says there in verse 3, And if anyone says anything to you, excuse me, in a colt with her, loose them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say that the Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. Verse 4, All this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, and he's quoting from Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, where it says, Tell the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. So this is a a young colt. Verse 6, So the disciples, hearing what he had to say, they went and did as Jesus commanded them. They brought the donkey and the colt, laid their clothes on them, and set him on them. So they take off their outward garments, they lay them over the top of this colt, and then Jesus gets up on the colt. And a very great multitude spread their clothes on the road. Others cut down branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Then the multitudes who went before and those who followed cried out, saying what we sang this morning, Hosanna to the Son of David. This isn't saying like, hey, we know this guy's name's dad's name is David. He's saying, Hosanna, save now, son of David. And so there's a prophecy talking about the son of David, who would be a descendant of the throne of David, who would come in and become their ruler, their lord, their king. And so in that day, this may not be impressive to us, we think of, you know, a conquering ruler would come in on not a donkey. We think of a donkey, we think of a simple animal that bears burdens, you know, We don't think of that. We think of a horse, something gallant. 
We watch these westerns and the, the, the hero always rides in on a white horse and, and, it, and it pictures strength. Well, think about it this way. Uh, in our culture, we look at the horse, it, it, perhaps we look at a, a really, really nice car or a limousine, something with many horses under the hood, you know. Uh, but in their culture, uh, to ride in on a colt or on, on a donkey, that was coming in under a banner of peace. He, he was not a ruler that was coming in to conquer. He was one that had already, already conquered, someone that was coming in like that. If he came in on a horse, you better watch out. He's getting ready to take you out. He's getting ready to, to lead his army and to take out your, your city. He's going to pillage. He's going to take care of things. He's going to tear things down. He's going to shut your, your doors. And so this man comes in under a banner of peace, and it says, Hosanna to the son of David. This is David that's written about in the Old Testament. He's a descendant of David. And if you read in the beginning of the book of Matthew, you see that. They lay out his genealogy. When you say, well, why in the Bible do they spend so much time talking about so-and-so begat so-and-so and so-and-so begat so-and-so? I don't need to read somebody's family tree. Well, if you're going to be a king, you better be able to prove that you're a descendant of the man that was on the throne before. And so Jesus is no different He's the king of all kings. He's the descendant of David. And so uh, when he had come into Jerusalem, excuse me, uh, verse, uh, I'm still in the quotation. He says, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. And when he had come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved saying, who is this? Somebody's coming in with all this pomp and circumstance. You think, man, this guy must be important. Everybody's shouting his name. Like they know who he is. But there were some of those that heard him coming in saying, who is this? Who's, who's this guy? You know, if somebody rolled down Main Street in Ironton and was driving this big blinged out vehicle, we'd all go, and, and people were on the street waiting for him to come. This isn't a parade. This is one guy. This is one person on one small animal. Now, many times in our parades, it's like at the end, you have the horses and the donkeys sometimes, but or the the little Shetland ponies, you'll have those too. They always put them at the end because then somebody can shovel up what they leave behind, right? But in this case, it wasn't that. It was just one animal and one guy. And everybody was shouting, praising, Hosanna in the highest. And so as he's doing this, verse 11 says, So the multitude said, This is Jesus, the prophet from, the Na- from Nazareth of Galilee. So there was a group that didn't know who he was. And there was a group that seems that followed him there. And then when they got there and everybody said, who's this guy? They were like, they were ready to tell them. This is who this is. He's the prophet from, the, from Nazareth of Galilee. So then turn to Mark. It's, it's interesting to me as you go Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it, it slowly reveals a little bit more detail each time. So in, in Mark chapter 11, Now Mark, uh, Matthew presented him as the fulfillment, the son of David, uh, the fulfillment of the prophecies. But to Mark, uh, Mark didn't write anything about the prophecies in here because, well, um, it didn't matter. He was writing to the Gentiles. They didn't have the prophecies. So he's writing to common folk that didn't have the scriptures. And so he's not going to tell them about how he fulfilled the prophecies. They don't mind about that. But they, he shows Jesus as the servant, the ultimate servant. And in their culture, to be a servant meant you were lesser than. But what they were showing is this king came as a servant. You know, In Mark chapter 10, verse 45, a few years back, we studied the book of Mark. And the key verse there said this, 
For Jesus did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so in verse 1 of chapter 11, it says, When they drew near Jerusalem at Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and he said to them, Go into the village opposite you, and as soon as you have entered it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. So we get that little detail. Loose it and bring it. And if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it. Now, I find this interesting, and I didn't talk about it in the last book, but it's interesting to me because mostly when kings come into town and they're showing you, hey, here I am, they ride on their own animal. But Jesus came, he didn't have his own animal. So he provided one. The Lord provided. And so he says, loose it and bring it. And if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it. And immediately he will send it there. So they went their way and found the colt tied by the door outside of the street. And they loosed it. But some of those who stood there said to them, why are you doing, or what are you doing, loosing the colt? And they spoke to them just as Jesus had commanded. And so they let them go. Then they brought the colt to Jesus, they threw their clothes on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their clothes on the road, others cut down leafy branches from the trees, and they spread them on the road. And then those who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna, here it is again, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of our father David that comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. So Mark doesn't write, so it was fulfilled, he writes just what they said because it didn't matter to them. Verse 11, And Jesus went into Jerusalem, into the temple, and so when he had looked around at all things, as the hour was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. And so he didn't stay in town. He found a quiet place to have his evening with his disciples. Okay, so Luke, chapter 19. Luke gives us a little bit more detail, because he's writing to the Greeks. He's a doctor, which didn't mean that he was a, a, a wealthy man. It just meant he was a doctor. That was his profession. And many times in that culture, you would actually own your own doctor. And if you've ever been to the hospital and needed care right, way, right away, you know why you would want to own your own doctor. You don't want to wait in the waiting room, get sicker. And you also don't want to wait for the paperwork or the computers that don't work, right? So you can tell I've had an experience recently. So in in Jesus' day, Luke was writing this, and he, he wrote the book of Acts as well, but he was writing this so that his master would have a better account of the things that happened in the life of Jesus, and he could make his own decision. So Luke is very meticulous in his detail, and he also um, he just presents the gospel to the Greeks. That's his audience. And so the Greeks were looking for the perfect man, and so Luke shows this, this man. Verse 28 of Luke chapter 19 says, When he had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. And it came to pass, when he drew near to Bethpage in Bethany, at the mountain called Olivet, that he sent two of his disciples, saying, going, Go into the village opposite you, where as you enter, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Loose it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, Why are you loosing it? Thus you shall say to him, because the Lord has need of it. So those who, sent, excuse me, those who were sent went their way and found it, just as he had said to them. But as they were loosing the colt, the owners of it said to them, Why are you loosing the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of him. Then they brought him to Jesus. 
They threw their own clothes on the colt. They set Jesus on him, and as he went, many spread their clothes on the road. And then as he was now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen. So here we get a specific reason why they're praising. They are praising this man because he has done these mighty works and signs. And I love this because as he presents this truth, they're all thinking about the things they've seen Jesus do. He's healed. He's given sight to the blind. He's made the deaf who were mute speak. They weren't just not able to hear. They also couldn't talk. So those cords hadn't developed. And so Jesus had touched them in some way or another. And because of that, he made them whole. Lazarus raised from the dead three days after he was dead. They told him, don't open the tomb. By now he stinketh. You know, they, he was no doubt dead. And yet when he got there, he opened the tomb, they opened the tomb and Jesus called him out. He didn't even walk in. He said, Lazarus, come out. He spoke and the man had life. And so you could imagine, I, I'm going to follow this guy. But you can also imagine that they might be following him for the wrong reasons. They might be following him for what they think he is rather than who he really is. And we see this today in the church. Men and women follow Jesus for the wrong reasons. They follow Jesus for what he can do for them rather than for who he is. And while that is okay for a time, a faith that is true and cannot be shaken is a faith that has to be tested. Tested for why we're following him. Because if God doesn't give you exactly what you want and you stop following him, were you ever really his? That's the question. And so here these people are. They're following him. They're praising him. And they say, for the mighty works they had seen, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. What is the name of the Lord? Is it Jesus? What is the name of the Lord? Well, the name of the Lord is not so much what we call him. The name of the Lord is actually his character. It's who he is. It's what he does. Uh, in, Psalm, in one of the Psalms I taught a few weeks ago at Parkland, there was a, a portion of the scripture that actually said he's the, the Lord above hosts, talking about how he's Lord over creation, how he's Lord over the heavens, and all of the things in the galaxies that we can see through our telescopes. And yet he condescends down to man, he hears our prayers, and he acts upon them. He gets involved personally in our lives. I don't know too many lords or kings that do that. They don't leave their throne, they rule from their throne. Jesus left his throne, came down here, dwelt among us, took on human flesh, allowed himself to experience the woes and the temptations of this life, and after all that was said and done, gave his life for those who were of his kingdom. He gave his life for those who were his enemies. He gave his life for anyone, whosoever would believe upon him. And so this king is like no other king. So verse 39, we see the first time where one of the writers saw fit to write down that there was opposition. All these people are praising this guy. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They already had a king, mind you. Their king was a Roman king. And to come in and say, blessed is this man, bring him in. We want him to be our king is treason. And so this is dangerous. 
And the Pharisees, who were more interested in the status quo and pleasing their government rather than pleasing God, they said, this is a threat to us as a nation. We're going to have our rights taken away even more. We need to silence this guy. So in verse 39, it says, some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, and they said, teacher, rebuke your disciples. Tell them to shut their pie holes. Stop them. I mean, that's my translation, but that's what they're saying. They're angry. They're seething. Tell them to shut up. Tell them to quit. And the Pharisees many times wanted to silence the disciples because they saw that they were losing the grip on people. They wanted control. They didn't care about God's kingdom. They just wanted their kingdom to grow. And so here we are in verse 40. It says, but he answered and said to them, this is what he said to them. And this is going to blow me away for a couple of different reasons. But he answered and said to them, this is Jesus speaking, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. Creation declares the glory of God. And if we will not praise God for who he is and what he has done, then creation will. Creation will speak it even if we won't. And I love this because they've told him, hey, you need to get your disciples to be quiet and he does not rebuke his disciples. Now, mind you, there's a mixed multitude here. There are some, remember, that I said were praising Jesus for something that they thought he was, but he wasn't. But Jesus never once said, hey, stop, you guys are hypocrites. He fanned the flame. He allowed them to praise him, even though their praise was immature. What I mean by it being immature is that Many of the folks that were in this crowd and praising him and saying, come on in, we want you to be our king, they were the same people that would be in the multitude and easily swayed to say, crucify him a week later. And so even though their, their faith and their praise hadn't been fully tested yet, he still let them praise him. He didn't stop them. You know, Remember what he said about the little children that came to him and they, and they wanted to talk to him. They wanted to climb all over him. And, and the disciples were like, hey, he's too important. You guys need to step aside. You know, we'll stop them, Jesus. We know he got stuff to do. He says, hey, suffer the little children to come unto me. Of such is the kingdom of heaven. And so many times, and this happens in churches, and I'm not saying that it happens here, but it can, we get to a certain spot in our walk and we start to kind of condemn those that are less mature in their faith than we are. And Jesus says, hey, encourage them. Keep, keep supporting them. Encourage them in every little bit because every little step they take towards me, they're learning how to walk. You know, no one looks at a little child that starts to take steps and falls and says, hey, don't do that. You're going to hurt yourself. Now, many times we'll do things to make sure they don't hurt themselves. We'll give them a hand or we'll put pillows around them so they don't fall on the wood floor or whatever you got. But, but you encourage it. You go, hey, you're doing great. And they are not doing great. I mean, they're tripping over themselves, they're failing, they're getting hurt, they're crying, and you're just like, ugh, you know. But you don't discourage them because they're starting to walk, and they're going to need that later on. They're going to need to be able to walk on their own. And so Jesus doesn't discourage them from praising him, even though he knows that as they're praising him as their king, many of them in their hearts are double-minded. They're, they're not really following Jesus as a king, they're following him as a miracle worker. But later on, they'll be tested, and you'll find out who really is the disciples. Makes me think of the Apostle Peter. The Apostle Peter um, has many times put his foot in his mouth. He's said, hey, you know, the, there were many people that were following Jesus, and Jesus had said a very hard saying. He said, unless you drink of my blood and eat of my flesh, you cannot follow me. 
course, he was talking about his body, how it would be the bread for their new life and how his blood would be the, the payment for their sins so that they could go on living and have eternal life. can't be saved by any other way than the blood of Jesus applied to your life. But in there, he asked his disciples after that big multitude that was hanging around, they all loved him until he said that. What do you mean I'm going to have to eat your flesh and drink your blood? I'm out of here. This is creepy. So they all left, and his disciples stayed there. And, and he said to them, he said, are, are you going to leave me also? And they said, well, where else are we going to go? You have the, the words of eternal life. You've changed. The, we're, we're new cats. And they stayed with him. And then right after that, Jesus starts predicting that he's going to give his life for, the, good, for the, the ransom, for everyone to pay for their sins. He's predicting it. I'm, I'm going to give my life for the sheep. And Peter steps up. This is moments later, and he says, you shall not die, Jesus. You're our leader. And Jesus looks at him, and he says, get behind me, Satan. You don't know what you're saying. You're, you're thinking in the ways of the flesh, and, and this plan that I've come to fulfill, this rescue plan for the whole world, it, it's the plans of the Father. And so uh, we have Peter doing that, and then later, Peter on the night of his betrayal, he's like, Lord, I'll even die for you. And, and Jesus looks at Peter and says, Satan desires to sift you like wheat. He, he wants to test you, Peter. He wants you to fail. And he's going to do everything to trip you up. The sheep are going to be scattered. I'm going to be pierced, and you guys are all going to leave me. And Peter says, well, I won't. Even if everybody else does, I'm going to stick around. I'll never leave you, Jesus. I love you. And Jesus tells him, okay, well, I'm praying for you because it's going to happen. And of course, we know it's a very famous story because we, for whatever reason, we lock on to failure, but we can also relate with Peter because we've done the same thing. If you've walked with the Lord at all, you've said, I will do this no matter what, Lord, and then something happens and, and you deny him. Maybe even getting to the point where you stop following him altogether because it was too hard. What he asked you to do, you didn't want to let go of whatever it is you were holding on to instead of him. And so... Jesus says, I'll pray for you that your faith will be made full. He says, and then after that, I want you to strengthen your brethren. Now we see that later on. Peter, after Jesus is killed, buried, resurrected, Jesus comes to Peter. He encourages him. He says, hey, do you love me? Feed my sheep. Do you love me? Take care of my lambs. And three times, same amount of times that he denied him. And after that, he restores him. He says, now go feed my sheep. And you never once again see Peter falter in his faith. Now, that also helps that he was filled with the Holy Spirit after the day of Pentecost. But on that day, there were 5,000 saved. And so Peter preaches this great word. And so I won't linger on that too much more. So let's, let's turn to Luke and read our last uh, account, gospel account. Luke chapter 12. Oh, yeah, John. Thank you, Janet. Luke, John. <laughs> yep John chapter 12 now John is writing this with perspective okay he didn't write it immediately John spent some time pondering these things and he actually lived to be 90 something years old so he didn't write it immediately and so I don't know about you guys but if you've ever witnessed something and had more time to think about it you can kind of notice and point, put some more things together that happened that you wouldn't have remembered if you wrote it down immediately and so his, his faith and his understanding of what was happening was hindsight. And you know what it said about hindsight. Hindsight's twenty twenty. 
And so he was able to kind of progress and chew on the, the things that Jesus had taught. So in Luke, John chapter 12, verse 12, it says, The next day a great multitude that had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, they took branches of palm trees and they went out to meet him. And they cried out. They said, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. The King. They didn't just call him, hey, some guy that's a prophet. They said, the king of Israel. We want you to be our leader. Now, this is interesting because when they're saying this, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Remember the other part, the colt, the foal of the donkey, that was Zechariah 9.9. But when he says, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, he's quoting from Psalm chapter 118. So if you have a chance, you don't have to do it today. I'm going to read it. But in Psalm chapter 118, they're quoting verse 25 and 26. Uh, in my translation in New King James, it says, Save now, I pray, O Lord. That's the word Hosanna. I pray, send now prosperity. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. So the house of the Lord is, we would call Bethlehem. House of bread is what that means. And so the bread of life comes to the house of bread and says, we have praised you, we have blessed you from the house of the Lord. So they're all praising him with this praise song that they all know. This is close to the Hallel songs, the songs they would sing as they ascended into Jerusalem on the feast days. But it's also interesting that as they're praising him for being the God who saves now and brings prosperity, fixes their government, they're all thinking these are the things he's come for, the Messiah, if you go back a few verses, they kind of missed a piece of what the Messiah was going to do. In verse uh, 21 of the same chapter, Psalm 118, it says, I will praise you for you have answered me and you've become my salvation. Now they were looking for salvation, right? But then it says this interesting phrase in verse 22. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Now we know this from Peter where Peter talks about the building, the church, and how Jesus is the cornerstone. Without the cornerstone on any building, you don't have any stability. And so he says, this stone, which was meant to be the cornerstone of your faith, of the church of God, they didn't like throw it in there and go, okay, this is the cornerstone. They go, what is that thing? That doesn't look like a cornerstone I put on my building. Let's set that aside and throw it out in the weeds, and let's keep building our building. Let's build the kingdom. But what it says here is that that chief cornerstone was Jesus. Verse 23, this was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. In other words, they marvel at the fact that Jesus is the cornerstone because he looks nothing like the Messiah that they thought that they would have. They thought they would have another king like David that would go out and conquer, that would take care of their enemies, get rid of all those who oppressed Israel. And yet Jesus, when he came as a conquering king, he came to conquer their hearts. He came to deal with their sin. He came to deal with the, the real problem, not the symptom. Their enemies were overcoming them because they had gone after other gods, because they had pursued pleasure and comfort and, and all these things rather than a relationship with the one, the God who delivered them from Exodus, the God who delivered them from Egypt, from sin, from the flesh, from the power of sin. And so, they say, verse 25, Save now, I pray, O Lord. O Lord, I pray, send now prosperity, 
Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They praised him because of they, what they thought he was going to do. But what he is saying, you need to praise me for who I really am. I, I came to be your Lord. I came to be your Savior. If you want me to be the king, you have to come humbly. So back in John, then Jesus, verse 14, when he had found a young donkey, he sat on it, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, remember this is hindsight that we're getting from John, when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written about him and that they had done these things to him. Therefore the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, they bore witness. So when everyone's saying, Hosanna in the highest, people are like, who is this guy? Remember from Matthew's account. And they said, this is the guy, he just rose Lazarus from the dead a few days ago. They raised him from the dead. They bore witness. We need to be careful that we remember the works of the Lord and we bear witness of them. When people are like, well, who's Jesus? If you're able to tell them something from Scripture, it's one thing, which is good. But you also need to tell them personally what you've seen him do. And if you haven't seen him do anything, Perhaps you need to seek him a little bit more because he's doing things in your life daily. Look for those things, and when he allows you to see them, repeat them. Tell other people, who is this Jesus you're going to worship on Sunday? He's the Lord who saved my soul. He delivered me from sin. He fixed my marriage. He, he did this thing. Whatever it was that's your testimony, repeat that thing. It should be your trophy. You are his trophy you are the testimony of that God's still alive and he's still working. Repeat it. Tell others. And when you tell others, it'll restore to you the joy of your, your salvation that you had at the beginning. Because when you remember what God's done for you, it takes you back to that first love. You're like, man, God's good. Man, he's good. And, and then what you also want to be sure to know is that God wants to do things today. He doesn't want you to just stay and repeat that thing from the beginning over and over again. He also wants to do things today that you can continue to repeat. And a little sidetrack. Therefore, the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead bore witness. For this reason, the people also met him because they heard that he had done this sign. And the Pharisees therefore said among themselves, you see that you are accomplishing nothing. Look, the world's already gone after him. We're losing our grip. We're losing control. You guys aren't doing anything. We've lost it. They're already praising him. Now, notice this, verse 20. He's walked in as a king. The people are recognizing it. And immediately there are people that want to have an audience with him. Verse 20 says, Now there were certain Greeks among those who came up to worship at the feast, and then they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and they asked him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Now you would think somebody comes in to be a king, people want to have an audience with him. Okay, come on, I'm popular. Come in and talk to me. I mean, that, that, that would be me. Hey, you like what I do? Here, let me tell you a little more. You know, that we like to do that. And you see that in, in sports, you know, people want to interview you right afterwards. We've seen what you've done. Tell us what you were thinking while it was going on. I don't know, we just ran the defense, we've been running, and you know, we've been practicing real hard, the team played great, and uh, I want to thank my sponsors. You know, I was watching NASCAR yesterday. Of course, they always got to throw the sponsors in there. <laughs> but here's what happens. They said, sir, we wish to see Jesus. 
Verse 22, Philip came and told Andrew, and in turn, Andrew and Philip told Jesus. But Jesus answered them, and he starts teaching them. He, he completely ignores what those people think. He's like, hey, now is the time I want to invest in you guys this week. Verse 23, but Jesus answered them saying, the hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Most assuredly, I say to you that unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. He who loves his life will lose it. And he who hates his life in comparison in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him my father will honor. So here we have it. Jesus is not impressed. He's not worried about what people think about him. He came to do the will of the Father. So during this last week, it will be a, uh, a full-court press. He's not on defense, though. He's headed for the goal. And for the joy that was set before him, he suffered the cross, despised the shame. And he did it all because of what he just told his disciples, that unless a grain of wheat dies of itself... It doesn't produce any fruit. It remains alone. But when it gets pressed down, put in the grave, that's where life comes from. Because we see the first fruits of the resurrection. We sang that, uh, that song this morning. We said, um, what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Jesus poured out every drop. You can't live without your blood. But we can't live without his. So let's pray. Thank you, Father, um, for your word. Thank you 